Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of changemakers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Risha Grant, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. I am so glad to be here. I've been excited for this. Risha, I look forward to learning more from you. Love the title of your book, Be Better Than Your BS, How Radical Acceptance Empowers Authenticity and Creates a Workplace Culture of Inclusion, which is really important. I think it's even more so important now, Risha, but before we get to that, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person you have become, Risha. I grew up in Oklahoma, still live in Oklahoma, born and bred, but I am from a small town of about 20,000 people, but then it's called Sapalpa. <laughs> it can be tough for people to pronounce. And when I think about Sapalpa, I realize that out of those 20,000 people, I still probably grew up around not even a thousand people because I grew up on what was called the black side of town. But it was a very close-knit community of family and friends and I mean people that I will know for my entire life. I grew up with my grandparents and my mom had eight siblings. And so all of my cousins and extended family a huge part of her life. So it's something that when you're a kid and you get in your teenage years, you're not that proud of being <laughs> from this small town and you look around like, I want to move to New York and LA and all these places. But as you get older, you realize that, man, this area puts so much into me. These people are cheering for me. I always have a home to go back to people that care about me. And when I would do stupid stuff in my early 20s and teens, I would think about those people were going to be embarrassed. So really close knit, but very religious. That part was a little different. My grandfather was a minister. And I'm telling you, every time the church doors opened, I was expected to be there all day on Sunday. There was Wednesday night prayer. There's Thursday night something. Young people's night on Sunday night. Growing up in a very religious family presents a lot of, a lot of difficulties for a lot of people. A lot of good, a lot of bad, but I love it all. You had both the support and love but also the limitations that some of their perspectives had placed on you. You also mentioned in the book, coined the term biosphere. That had an impact on you. How were you able to break out of some of the thinking and some of the biases that had been placed on you? My parents, I guess it's important to say my mom was 16 when she had me. My dad was 20. So they were very young. And if there was a party happening in town, it was probably happening at my house. <laughs> so my grandparents had us a lot. And what happened is because they were so religious, we were in church all the time. But then my mom and dad, being as young as they were, they weren't just, you have to wear a dress. You cannot wear earrings. You cannot wear makeup. These are things that my grandparents are saying, but my parents didn't enforce that. You mentioned the biosphere. I coined that term because these are the circles of influence that we are steeped in since birth, starting with our family and our friends. You know, I like to look at it like we're born into this world with a clean slate. 
But as we encounter different people, they download onto that slate. And so that's what happens with our families. They teach us. They teach us who we want to be around, who we don't want to be around, who we can love, who we can't love, what religion we need to practice. Like they teach us all of these things. And because we love them so much and because they meet our needs and take care of us, we don't question it for a very long time. And then we go to school and school teaches us about how we should be, what kind of citizens we should be, what the government allows, what the government doesn't allow. And it tells you the same thing. Who's not normal? in society. And then there's religion and there's media and there's all these things that keep downloading onto your screen. And before you know it, we've become people that aren't thinking for ourselves, but we're taking what these institutions and what these people that we love, we're taking all that information and making it our own. And so we have to back up and make sure that what we're saying, what we're doing, how we're acting are things that we actually believe and things that we actually care about. I was able to break out of it because my mom was always that person saying, you want to do that, go do it. No, you don't have to dress like that. No, you don't have to do this. My mom, her favorite is unwavering. And so basketball is a big part of my life. I don't know how I left that. I played Division One basketball. It's what I thought I would do with the whole rest of my life and what I was working toward. And I remember getting hurt. I had so many injuries and my mom would just say, if you want to play, go play. And that's how she was about life. You know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know an entrepreneur. And she said, what do we need to do? Oh, I need this and this. And my mom would figure out, she'd co-sign on a loan. She'd do all these things. Even if I didn't have an example, she was that person saying, you can do it if that's what you want to do, go do it. And so that's how I was able to break out of all of that. It's wonderful that you had her support. Now, one of the things that in order to break out of some of the biases that we grew up around is that it takes a certain level of understanding and reflection that is really hard. I think about the analogy that is often used about fish in water, not noticing that they are in water. So when we grow up in an environment, while the environment that I grew up in might seem odd to you, the practices or the way I see the world, but it is the way I see it. So how can we challenge our own thinking and this uh, biosphere that you mentioned that has influenced us over the years in order to be able to see things differently? I always ask myself, could my thinking be wrong? And the answer to that question is always yes. <laughs> it could be wrong. And if I am open enough to say, okay, if I could be wrong, then let me go and figure out why I could be wrong. Yeah, and that requires intellectual humility, Risha, which is very hard for us to maintain, especially as we gain more experience in the world and as we achieve more in our professional lives, it's hard to have that intellectual humility. Now, you also mentioned the BS in the title of your book, what is this BS that we need to be better than? It's the biosphere. It's our belief systems. It's what, another term in my first book that I coined called bias synapse, which is our brain's role in unconscious bias. And then it's the bullshit. And to me, the bullshit part of it is you saying, no, there's no way I can be wrong. There's no other view that I need to take into consideration here. Everything that I think about this is correct. That's the bullshit part of it because we can all be wrong. We can all learn from each other. 
you also mentioned of we first need to examine our own roots. We need to then reach self-acceptance before we can start accepting others. How can we go through that process? Because your focus is let's first work on ourselves before we start working on our teams or other individuals. But I think that if you will just begin to really look deeply and become self-aware of who you are. Like for me, with the whole thing of being in a relationship with a woman, well, being from a religious family, I thought for sure I'm going to hell. And what I realized all those years of lying to other people is really they didn't matter. I was lying to myself. When you lie to yourself, you can't feel good about anything that's going on. Like it eats you up inside. So that was the first thing for me in dealing with my own bias is I had these biases against white people. And when you grow up, everybody around you is black and you go to black church and all the stuff. I mean, yes, I did interact with white people at school and in town, but I was taught as a way to protect me that I had to be careful because white people didn't like me. I could play outside as much in the summers because they might not teach me the way they teach the other kids. They're going to think I stole my candy if I don't get a sack and a receipt. Grandma couldn't be a nurse, so she had to be a maid. So for a white family, the way I talk, the way I dress, all of these things are going to make these people not like me. You know, you get ahead of the game. It's like, well, guess what? I'm not going to like them either. I'm not going to like them first. And what I realized is that when I finally found out that I was being protected from white people, I thought, wow, I've never had a negative interaction with a white person in my life. So I thought they were pretty cool people. But grandma, who I love more than anybody, said that they may hurt me. So these are things that follow you because this happens as, as a really little kid. Well, these things are going to follow me throughout my life. And when I get in the work world and I am meeting with people and trying to sell them on a business that they seemingly don't care about, I'm thinking it's because I'm black. Now, maybe it is, but I don't know that for sure. And when you walk into every meeting with these thoughts about people, you your preconceived notions because you have no way of knowing if these things are true. You walk in the meeting and there's a different tone to it. And so when I started to think about how I thought about white people, and I'm, well, they're thinking about me like this and I'm thinking about them like this simply because we don't understand who you are. You have two choices that you don't understand or you can keep down this path that you're on. And so that's the way that I challenge myself. I say, you know what? I know one trans person. I am going to see if she will go to lovey and let me ask her stupid questions, uh, which probably, you know, not to her, but what it did was broke down so many barriers that I had. Hours. I'm laughing and talking with someone and it became so much less about who she was on the outside and the kind of person that she was on the inside whoever, we all first and foremost need to challenge ourselves. For leaders, if you are willing to challenge your own thinking this way, then other people will be more willing to challenge their own thinking. So part of what I love about your approach, Risha, is that it's not a pointing the finger that you need to, it's I need to, and that I need to brings other people along as well. Now, you also have a beautiful, 
unique definition of radical acceptance. What is radical acceptance? Radical acceptance is the practice of welcoming and embracing everyone's humanity, including your own, with no BS. It's pretty simple. And a lot of people are familiar with radical acceptance from the wellness world. In the wellness world, it teaches you how to avoid pain or how to tolerate pain. But the radical acceptance that I teach is people how to prevent it. So before it hits our front door, because if you look at the stats, it's going to hit your front door. <laughs> and so I just think you figure it out for yourself and then see how you can extend it towards someone else. So when you do that, and I want to start reflecting a little bit more on what this means for leaders of teams and organizations. You also mentioned inclusion in the team and organization. And what I wonder is, how do you balance that inclusion with constructive debate? Sometimes people avoid with the excuse of inclusion. So how can that be balanced, Risha, in your view? We're tired of hearing about it. We're tired of of having to deal with this. Well, what do you think about the people who are living it? (laughs) You don't think they're tired of talking. You don't know DEI fatigue until you grow up a person of color or a person of LGBT. or They are tired on the level that, that you probably will not understand. And so the balance is we don't have to talk about these things if we actually take care of them. And we actually are a culture where people can actually thrive, not survive, but actually thrive in this culture. If you hired me to be, or you hired me as a creative or whatever it is, if I can show up and focus fully on that job, I want you to get the best of me. But what happens is we have cultures where there's completely disconnected, they're toxic. People are gonna work in a full suit of armor, trying to deflect the BS that's coming at them all day. They're trying to make sure that they speak correctly. They're, They're making sure that their pronouns are in check. All of these things, by the time you get to actually focus on work, you probably put in about two hours, very siloed work here and there. We don't want to work with each other and get together as a team because I don't like this person and I can't stand person and this person makes me feel horrible. One of the things that I remember being the most surprised by when I really got into my work and started speaking all over the world was how many adults tell me my manager does not smile. They do not speak. And I thought, wow, you know, these are people (laughs) 30 to 50 plus that are saying, nobody is kind to me. And when you are a manager and you walk in the office and you don't smile at your coworkers or at your employees or at your team, you don't say good morning. You don't ask how people are doing. They think they've done something wrong. So now they're walking on eggshells and they have no idea why. Now, as a manager, I mean, you could be, they have nothing to do with that but you're a manager, there is more expected of you. If you can walk in the room, one person I remember talking to, she used to work for Oprah Winfrey. She said, the culture was amazing. Oprah would walk in and just say hi to everybody and ask them about them and all that stuff. And then she moves to the baking industry. She said, nobody speaks. And I'm thinking if Oprah Winfrey could walk in here (laughs) and say hello, surely my manager can do that. And it's something that I think that we have to remember. It's something that hard because I'm from Oklahoma and I'll tell you, we wave at the same times of the day. If you sit on your porch and somebody drives by, it's just... <laughs> so when I travel to places where people aren't that friendly, 
it always, it hits me hard in my heart space because again, I don't be strangers. I want to elevate it. Hey, how's your day going? And people are looking at me like, is she truly talking to me? I'm like, yeah, I'm talking to you. How's it going? But you know, an elevator is a great place to break down barriers because for certain people get on the elevator and you just get in that corner and squeeze in real tight. Instead of doing that makes me uncomfortable. I step out and I say, hi, how are you? How's your day going? Nine times out of 10, people are going to tell you everything you didn't even want to hear. On those 30 seconds that you spend on, I think that we get so caught up uh, labels that we forget that we're dealing with another human being. And if you cannot see how you may be showing up to others, like you're losing a little bit of your own humanity every time you can't take the time to show kindness or show concern or compassion for somebody you probably worked with for the past 10 years. Maybe I'm the kid that needs to be uh, split up because I'm going to ask you about your kids. <laughs> ask you, about, you know, whatever I see on your damn. But I think it makes it easier for us to bounce ideas off of each other. You know, one thing that for the past few years is conversations at work. Well, they're not that tough if you can establish trust and you can establish a culture where people to each other, where people can talk about how things are affecting them. You listen to a coworker come in and be able to talk about some of the things that are affecting them outside of work. You have more compassion for what's going on. You don't have to agree with it. With uh, Black Lives Matter and and as we got into police shootings and all of those things, people will tell me, well, it's not my fault. And I understand for what you may be going through. I can have compassion for the fact that you have a son that age that you're about now. I think that there are always things that we can find about each other to have compassion for or understanding about if we all allow ourselves to open up. Yeah, it's time to show that genuine interest and curiosity and finding other people's stories. So I want to get your thoughts with respect to that. So one of the things that you've mentioned is we need to examine our roots and have that self after that. We have to have that acceptance of others, which in part comes through authentic connection to their humanity. But there are opportunities also for the feedback and the challenging that is essential for psychological safety. Wanting to say something or to do something can be great, but if the impact follows that, your intent doesn't matter. So it's really, really important that you are creating an impact. And when you don't listen, I think it's the most difficult thing. When people tell me, I have reported this and I've said this and I said all of these people. And the first thing that they hear from leadership is, well, are you sure that that's the way the person meant it? Or are you sure that's what happened? You completely invalidate that experience. And what I can tell you guys is that if a person had their story because birth, that by the time they actually have the courage to take it to leadership, that it is foolproof that nothing can you say is, are you sure they meant it like that? That invalidates the entire thing. So I always tell leaders, listen, validate, and act. None of this means that you agree with them. None of it means that we need to bring both of you in to have a conversation so that we can try to figure out somebody. You've got to rely on your people. Are there any practices or resources you typically find yourself recommending for leaders who want to have more positive action and more positive results. One of the things I recommend is doing a BS check. And that BS check says, I am going to talk to 
have coffee with, I always recommend something like coffee or tea, something that's about 20 minutes because lunch is going to be around this person or, or dinner. <laughs> you can have coffee in the morning, 20, 30 minutes, and just talk. Talk to your people. Talk to people that maybe make, I tell people in the companies all the time that you're at level and I am talking entry level. I am talking, talk to the, the cleaning people. I mean, and find out how they're being treated at this company. They're your biggest ambassadors. Every time they leave that building, they're going to talk about how great or how horrible this company is. So the fact that the CEO or the VPs are scheduling coffee with me, the college graduate who's been here all of a year, or the person who's cleaning the bathroom speaks, well, I do a BS show. I cannot do it. You know, there's a girl standing there. She's, you know, seven foot to one. And you keep trying to send that player in. And then when you have practice and they set it up for you, you're like, that's on me. I should have listened to you. I should have come up with a different play. That's why, to me, you've got to have that captain on the floor because the captain on the floor is saying, you know what, it's not going to work. And so we are going to make that play and work. Sometimes we have to modify the play because you're asking people to go out here and do something that they can and you have not, I, I think undercover boss is so great. They learn to establish at this very high level that the people in the store cannot do. <laughs> you know, and it's like, everything they say, wow, this whole not work. And if you look back, I mean, a hundred employees have said, this does not work. So sometimes the coach has to get on the floor. And that's what a BX check is. It is getting on the floor, understanding who your people are, how your products may be affecting people and the changes you need to make so that you can win. The other thing I suggest is self-educating. Forget what mom said, forget what grandma said. And I'm not saying those aren't great reasons that they aren't things that you can't learn from them. But if you've learned something negative about an entire group of people, you don't have the excuse that we had back in the day where it was hard to shows or books or what have you on certain things. And there is something out there. The media is so segmented. I mean, you can pretty much find, and I think there's so many resources in my book of things to watch and streaming services and books and all of these things that frankly, uh, catching up on some of them. But the things that I have the most difficult time with, I go and learn about that life or that, that lifestyle or whatever it is. And I throw everything that I've heard and actually go learn or go try to version that represents that community. I think we could all get out of our box a little bit and go have dinner in a community different from yours or go take your kids to a playground where there are a lot of kids that don't look like them. When people feels like to be a minority, it helps them to recognize when they're not how maybe that that person is feeling. She has to get on the floor and that's that's the recommend along with all of the many resources of shows and streaming services and things that we can really learn about each other if we want to. What outstanding recommendations. Get on the floor and listen without the biases of already the answers. One of the things that sometimes I have with executives on is that our minds work very quickly and yes. we think a lot faster than even people speak. And in most instances, we already know the answer they are going to yes. give. And part of what I have to tell them is, even if you know exactly what they're going to say, take it best, fully focus and listen. And that's really, really hard to do in order for us to understand. But watching the play, being and being curious, as does 
learning ourselves in Qing through reading your book, Risha. Let's find out more about you, your resources, and your book. All on social media. For the book, go to Amazon, Be Better Than Your BS. If you want to connect with me, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, any of them, LinkedIn, more than anything, is where I'm focused. I, I love to talk to people. I love to hear what people are dealing with. And I'm always open like that. If you email me, you'll most likely get an email back. So I'd love to hear from you. Well, I appreciate you better than our BS, Risha. And most especially that you yourself talk about how you have worked and continue to work on this yourself. So it's yes. not a mountain any of us reach. We have to constantly challenge ourselves and our thinking. And I really appreciate the frameworks and the approaches and the examples you have laid out in your book. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Risha Grant. Hey, this was great. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.